0: Well, good morning. Again, my name is Robert. I'm the lead pastor here. I want to welcome you. Uh, We are continuing in our Path to Paradise series. We'll finish up next week. Uh, If you've been tracking along, we've we've had this little path on the reading plan where we started off, uh, created in and for paradise in the Garden of Eden. And when human beings sinned, they broke relationship with God and they found themselves in a paradise Lost, But immediately, God began to return us to paradise, and we see these different covenants, these promises that, that are made, all leading up to and culminating in Jesus. And so the person and work of, of Jesus is, is the ultimate culmination of uh, the, all these promises uh, that God has made throughout uh, Old Testament history. And so we've gotten you there, and and now we want to talk about the signs of the covenant, the new covenant. Uh, you've seen some signs in some of the covenants of the Old Testament. You saw that Noah had the sign of the rainbow, and you saw, for instance, that uh, Abraham had a sign of circumcisions. And, and so there's like these external signs that point to this internal reality of what uh, God had agreed with human beings, and. The new covenant, the, the culmination of all those other co- uh, covenants, has uh, two signs, and so those are baptism and the Lord's Supper. So that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, or the signs of this of this new covenant. And so we're going to talk about what they mean and how they function, and then how as disciples of Jesus should we approach these signs. So what do they mean, how do they function, and how do we as disciples Approach these. So, first time we want to talk about is baptism. You just heard uh, probably the, the the clearest command to for to the church to baptize that you can find in Scripture uh, in Matthew 28. And I'll read that again. Uh, Matthew 28:19. Jesus says, "Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I." have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." So, it seems pretty obvious that that Jesus is saying, uh, baptize people uh, who are new disciples. And it's in this context of what we usually call the Great Commission. So, this little set of verses uh, in Matthew 28. And it's Jesus clarifying what the mission is for the church. And that mission is to make disciples or followers or learners, you might say, uh, of, of others and and not just those that are in your own neighborhood but extended out to the very ends of the earth, to all the nations. And it may seem odd that part of His instructions for making disciples is to get them wet. Right? You need to baptize them. You need, you need to Plunge them into water. Uh, why, why would he say that? Why, why would he have the church baptize new disciples? And so we want to talk about, again, the meaning of this and, and how it functions. And so, baptism is a sign and it's a seal. It's a sign and it's a seal. It's a sign in that it signifies the gospel. It is is pointing to, it is signifying, it is symbolizing, there's a lot of different words you could use, the very heart of the Christian faith, which is the gospel. And the gospel is that Christ has died, He's been buried, and He has risen from the dead. So the new disciple is literally acting that out with their body. They're being plunged into a watery grave, so to speak, and buried in that grave, but then brought out of that grave, resurrected out of that grave. And they're saying with their body that this is, this is what I believe. The church is also saying this is what we believe. Every time we baptize somebody, we're, we're signifying this, this is the core of the Christian faith. This is what we uh, believe. The person who's getting baptized is also saying that through their belief in the gospel, this has been what's happened to them, that they have died to the power of sin, the penalty of sin, and they've been raised to a new life in, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that new life is not just for now, it's forevermore. It's eternal life. And so they are signifying with their bodies the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and the death to power and penalty of sin and the new life they have uh, in Christ. It's also what we might call a seal, right? It's an overt way for the church to offer the gospel and for people to receive it right? Um, Now, how people have the gospel offered to them and receive it in a saving way is through the preaching of the gospel and the placing of faith in that gospel. That's how a person becomes a Christian. It's not by being baptized in some magical water, okay? So, what we hope is happening, for instance, on Sunday morning is that you're hearing the gospel preached and you're receiving it by faith, right? Uh, Paul says this in Romans 10.17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. And so this, this, this is, this is the, how you become a Christian, is that you hear the gospel and you respond with this genuine saving faith, trusting in what Christ has done for you uh, on the cross. But what baptism is, is a way to show that on the outside, to overtly in a, in a in a symbolic way, but also in a way where you're you're giving the, the church is giving the gospel and you're receiving the gospel in an external way. It seals that relationship with Jesus, and so it signifies it as in it it shows it, but then it seals it in a way that you with your own body you are being offered the gospel and you are receiving the gospel. Uh, through baptism, Think of it like a wedding ceremony. I, I like to think of baptisms as, as like weddings, right? So, the bride and groom already love each other. They're already committed to each other till death do us part before the wedding ceremony. That relationship is already there. But, but then they go to the wedding ceremony and they take vows. And they do this publicly. And then they have this wedding ring thing that they do. And this wedding ring thing, it is a sign and a seal. So it's a sign in that usually the pastor that's doing the wedding says, look, the, the, the ring is round and it signifies, it's a sign of the unending nature of their love for one another. Or maybe they'll say something along the line of, of it's made of pure gold or, you know, it's made of precious metal. And this signifies the uniqueness and the the cost of this commitment that they're making today, so it's, it's a sign, but, it, but it's also a seal because then they take the rings and they say, with this ring, I thee wed, and they give and they receive externally this token of their commitment. So, baptism is a lot like that. A person being baptized is already a Christian. They've already heard the gospel, and they've responded with saving faith, and now they're professing that reality externally, both as a sign and as a seal of that covenant, that experience. Now, can the church know for sure if people are genuine Christians? No, not really. We can't know for sure. Uh, We attempt to listen as best we can to people... Uh, as they talk about their understanding of the gospel and their response to that gospel. And so I, I'm always listening for it. Does this person understand that they are a sinner and that they need Jesus to save them from that sin? Do they not only believe that intellectually, but have they received that for themselves? Do they, they understand that uh, reality of sin and that need uh, for a Savior? And sometimes we do ask people to wait. Sometimes as we're talking, we just think, you know what? Maybe, maybe not quite there yet. Let's read a book together. Let's meet a few times. Let's talk about it more because we really take it seriously. We really want people to get baptized here to ha- have a genuine relationship uh, with God. The person's baptism can be revoked by the church. I don't know if you know that. Uh, so baptism is a sign and seal that someone is in Christ or in the church. But in a situation of church discipline where that person is engaging in unrepentant, habitual sin and refusing to confess that sin, refusing to repent from that sin, uh, the church has the option to say, actually, we may have gotten it wrong, we don't know for sure, but we are now revoking that baptism. It would be along the lines of what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 18, verse 15. He says, if your brother sins against you... Go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector truly i say to you whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven again i say to you if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask it will be done for them by my father in heaven for where two or three are gathered in my name there am i among them interesting that that verse is in the context of church discipline usually when we quote that verse you know it's like in a worship time and like Oh, two or three are gathered, and you're here." That's actually not the context. The context is actually the church saying with one voice, declaring, kind of using its declarative power and saying, we don't think you're a member of Christ. We don't think you're a member of the church anymore. And he says, treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. Uh, that's code word for just outside the church. It doesn't mean they're they're being shunned or you're being mean to them, uh, but it does mean you're saying to them, "If you don't repent, we don't believe you're a Christian," and it's done with hopes that they would repent, that they would turn back to Christ. And notice that it's 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 not like Defcon 10 at the very beginning, right? It, it it's like one person goes to the, the, the brother or sister who, who is unrepentant and says, hey, come back, come back, come back to Christ. And then if they don't listen, they get a friend, and then the two of them or three of them go and talk to the person. Right? It's, it's for the purpose of calling them back to repentance. And then even when it's brought before the church, the church gets involved in saying, come back, come back to Christ, repent. But if the person absolutely refuses, at, at, at some point the church would say, we, we're going to revoke this baptism. We used our declarative power before in baptism to, to say that we believe this person is a Christian. Now, we're using our declarative power to say that we don't think that the person is a Christian. But again, in hopes of uh, repentance, again, think about the wedding ring. When, when someone uh, gets a divorce, they take off their wedding ring, and honestly, that divorce has probably occurred in their heart already. But it's, it's, it's a very powerful symbol, right, of people taking off the wedding ring and signifying, no, I'm no longer uh, in this uh, covenant relationship. And so it's a church's prerogative to sort of revoke that ring uh, if they believe the person has uh, rejected Christ. So, think of baptism as the sign and seal of initiation into the, the covenant community, Uh, of the church, we can think of the Lord's Supper, the second second sign, as the ongoing sign and seal of our relationship or our communion uh, with God and His people. The passage that you also heard read that's really like this very important passage uh, for the Lord's Supper is 1 Corinthians 11, starting with verse 23, and Paul says, "'For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you." That's, that's some pretty weighty language right there. He's not just saying, hey, a little suggestion here, church, if you feel like it, maybe you could do it. No. He's like, got this from the Lord, I'm passing it on to the church. He says, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, The cup is the new this cup is the new covenant. So there's that new covenant language. In my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, again, not a suggestion. Paul's like, you you need to do this. This is a command of the Lord, just like baptism is a command of the Lord. Uh, Lord's Supper or Communion is command of the Lord. Sometimes these are called ordinances, right? That's why they've been ordained by God. They've been commanded uh, by God. So what is this one? What's it about? So it's also a sign and a seal, right? It's a sign uh, in that it visibly signifies the core of the Christian faith and especially the, the death of Christ on the cross. The, it's interesting, baptism really shows the death, the burial, and the resurrection, but the ongoing sign of the Lord's Supper, it signifies the death. And this language that's used of, of bread broken, body broken, blood poured out, this is the language of sacrifice, the Old Testament sacrifice. And actually, it's being instituted in the context of, of a Passover, where they're thinking back to the Exodus, where the Passover lambs were slain in the place of the firstborn uh, son in, in, in the Israelite families, right? And so, this understanding of a sin sacrifice is a very very strong piece of what Jesus is portraying. And so, you have this blood poured out. So, blood poured out in a sin sacrifice uh, is, is, is what takes care of the sin problem, Right? The understanding is that the life of the animal was in the blood. I mean, we even use the term the lifeblood" of the organization or something like that. Uh, So the idea in the Old Testament sacrifice is that the life of the animal is being offered up in the stead of the sinner who should be dying for their sin, but instead a substitute is being offered. And so the blood is being poured out on the, the altar. But then the meat itself is not put on the altar. The meat is then shared with the priest and, and with the people that are offering the sacrifice. The reason they're doing that is because it signifies that there is now restored fellowship between God and the humans that have just offered up the sacrifice. Not only that, the, the food is actually nourishing the people. So there's a way in which it's an ongoing thing that's going on here, not just an initial saving, but an ongoing sustaining that's happening in the, 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 the picture of the sacrifice. So sin's being taken care of, fellowship is being restored, and ongoing sustaining is happening in the picture of a of a blood sacrifice. And, and Jesus is saying that all those sin sacrifices in the Old Testament were pointing ultimately to Him, that He was the one that could for once and for all take care of sin, restore fellowship and sustain us by grace in an ongoing way. Um, Hebrews is one of the clearest places you could read this over and over and over. Here's one section, Hebrews 9 verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself of himself. So you see that writer, writer of Hebrews, he's 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 drawing back from Old Testament and saying those were all pointing forward to the once for all sacrifice for sin that restores us to fellowship with God. And so when we're doing this, we're signifying all that. It's a sign that points to all, all of that. It's it's proclaiming that. I mean, Paul even says in, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Usually we use the word proclaim when we're speaking with words. And so there's certainly words that are involved in the instituting of the Lord's Supper, but there's also a lot of, 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 of visual sign going on there. And so you're, you're seeing the gospel proclaimed that Jesus' sacrificial death has taken care of your sin, restored you to fellowship, and is giving you the ongoing sustaining grace that you need both in this life and the life to come. And so, <clears throat> when, when we look at this, uh, we, we, it seems obvious that it is uh, a sign. And, and it, it, it's also a seal though, just like baptism is like this overt way. For the church to give the gospel and for you in an overt way to receive the gospel, which of course is happening in your heart primarily, but it but it's there's something special going on externally as the church gives and receives um, the gospel. Um, when you see this happening, you, you could think of it, again, you go back to the, 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 the marriage picture. So if the sign and seal of the initiation into marriage is the wedding ring, then the sign and seal of, of, in the ongoing way in marriage is actually sexual union. That every time a husband and wife give themselves to each other in sexual union, it's like a sacrament in the marriage. It's, it's signing and it's, it's sealing the marriage. It's saying that our relationship is unique. It is like no other on planet Earth. In part, what you're doing when you're take, receiving the, the bread and the cup is, is you're saying, my relationship with Jesus is like no other on planet Earth. He is holy. I am completely yielded to Him in absolute surrender and faith. He's not just one compartment in my life but this this is this is a relationship that is what, what everything in my whole life revolves around so not only is it is it a sign for the gospel but it's a seal that you experience in your own relationship with Jesus as you give and and receive uh, the gospel now it isn't magic okay this it's it's not some, some kind of a, a, a magical thing that, that has been thought of through the ages in different times as uh, magic, even the word hocus-pocus uh, comes from uh, one of the Latin phrases in the Catholic Mass that, that it sounded like hocus-pocus, right? And so when people saw that, heard that, they thought the priest was saying some kind of magical word because they didn't know Latin, and they thought he was changing the, the bread with a magical word, and then that's where the word comes from, right? So it's not not that, that's not what's happening, but something is happening. There's something powerful that is happening when we're taking and, and we're receiving the Lord's Supper. and It seems obvious that Paul thinks that something powerful is happening, something very serious is happening. I don't know if you caught that warning section there in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, Paul is saying to, to, the, to the Corinthians, some of you have gotten sick or died because of the ways that you have been dealing with the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So I want to say something's happening. <laughs> Something significant and powerful is happening. It's not just juice and crackers, right? God, God's showing up in a, a powerful way. Uh, but how, how is He showing up? How is He showing up? I mean, the church has has fought over this for 2,000 years, trying to figure out what's going on here. And so here here are a few of the views um, that have, and this is a simplification of this, but I think maybe it'll be helpful to you. So most evangelical Baptist types would, would hold to what's called the memorial view. And they basically say, it's a sign. That's it. It's a sign. So, it sort of signifies this, this reality of the gospel. We remember it, okay? And that's it. Um, then you have, like, this, this, I would call it the uh, spiritual superfood view. And there's different kind of ways to think about this. So, Anglican Lutheran view, and I, I actually grew up in a Lutheran uh, tradition, would hold to something usually called consubstantiation. So their understanding is that the, the presence of Jesus is like kind of riding along with the elements, with, with the the, the, uh, the bread and the and the wine. And and it's not that the bread and wine have changed into the body and blood of Jesus, but that they're just like really close, right? Right alongside each other, and that somehow you're ingesting the presence of Jesus by taking the bread. And, the cup. Uh, and when I w- was in the Lutheran church, I was an altar boy and I would dress up in the robes and help distribute and stuff. And we had a special sink in the back uh, of the church that the, any leftover wine would have to go down that sink. And it went straight to the ground because they were like, this wine has somehow changed and we need to not put it in the plumbing. I don't know why it's better in the ground than the plumbing, but... But it, they were very strict about it, like make sure it goes in the special sink and not in the regular sink because we don't want this, you know, to go, this blood to go into um, the, the, the plumbing. So um, they definitely had some ideas around that, that something had changed with the elements. Uh, then the Catholic view kind of takes this you know, one step further is what's called transubstantiation, and so they would say that, that the elements actually, the elements in and of themselves, have changed into the body and blood of Jesus. And so they would, they would say, I know it still looks like bread, right, but it's really not. It's actually changed, right, the, the accidents and the essence they talk about. So the accidents still look like bread and they still look like wine, but the essence of it has changed, and it's changed almost like magically in the moment that the priest gives the words of institution, right? So, when, even when the priest holds up the host, there's this idea that that just turned into Jesus. And you need to venerate, you need to worship the host because it just turned into Jesus. So, it's like, is it the memorial view where it's just a sign and there's nothing else going on really? Or is it the spiritual superfood view where I take this stuff and it's like, I mean, ingesting Jesus in, into my body, um, I think it's probably something in between, right? I don't think, I don't think, I don't think either one of those is probably uh, right on the nose. And so what I would say, and this is what uh, Presbyterians and Reformed Baptist types would say is, is a view called spiritual presence, that God is showing up. Just like he's showing up in the preaching of the Word. He's showing up. Somehow he's he's using a fallible, sinful preacher who's talking about the Bible, and he's using that somehow in the power of the Holy Spirit to drop down in this room and show up and, and move in people's lives. He's doing the same thing through the bread and cup. He, he's showing up. He's dropping down into, and this is a means that he's given us. Do we understand everything that's happening? No, we don't understand. And I think trying to, to make all these like detailed theories about what's going on, I just really don't think that's all that helpful. It doesn't really, it's not really anything we can come up with in the Bible. It's all like extra stuff that people are trying to come up with. But I, I do s- s- want to say I, it's more than just a sign that reminds us. God is showing up in a special way, a unique way, when we're taking uh, the bread and the cup. Um, what one example, 1689 Baptist Confession says this, that it's a means of spiritual nourishment and growth. So, so we're, we're not thinking that by taking this with your physical mouth, you're somehow getting some benefits. Uh, but as one writer put it, you're taking it in with the mouth of faith. And when you do that, God shows up in a powerful way, a unique way, when it's taken by faith. If it's not taken by faith, it's, it, it, it could either, if it's in an unworthy way, it, it could mean some kind of discipline or judgment against you, right? Uh, but if it's taken in a worthy way, then God shows up. He builds us up. And, and I, I think we've experienced that here at Mercy House. And we didn't always take communion every week. Um, one year I was preaching through the book of James and The book of James can sometimes lean a little towards, you know, the law and, you know, you better do this and don't do that. And I just thought, you know, it'd be good if we just took communion after every sermon from James, just reminded of the gospel. And so as we did that, we just sensed that God was doing something powerful in the midst of the taking of the communion. And we got to the end of that semester and talked to leaders and members of the church and just said, what do you you think, maybe continue doing this? Because we thought, oh, it would get old and and just kind of like... You know, communion—it doesn't mean anything—and and and instead, what happened was it was becoming more meaningful, and so people said, "Let's keep doing it." And so, I mean, that's probably—we've been doing this for 14 years, uh, of every week, uh, doing doing the the taking of the the bread and the cup as a sign, as as a uh, as a seal, but also in some way, God shows up; He delivers. Right? He delivers in a way that's unique and special uh, and powerful. So, how should, how should you respond uh, to all of this? Well, one way is join the church. One way is join the church. One of the reasons Christ is instituting these things is He's trying to drive new converts to, uh, to Christianity. He's trying to drive them to church, to be in community. You cannot baptize yourself. I always tell this story about my daughter, Kayla, like, when she, you know, she's like five years old, she's wanting to be baptized, and we're like, maybe you're not old enough, and, you know, she's in the bathtub at bath time, and we walk in there, and she's baptizing herself, <clears throat> and I'm like, no, baby, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't count, sorry, you can't baptize yourself. Uh, the the church baptizes you, and part of that is the vetting of, of hearing your story and trying to figure out do, do they genuinely understand the gospel? Have they responded to the gospel in genuine faith? And so Christ Christ is is, is he's he's running you to the church. The Lord's Supper is the same thing, right? You do, you can't give yourself the Lord's Supper. You can't do it. You shouldn't if you're doing it. Don't do it. Stop, right? It's, it's done in the church. And so these two ordinances are given to us in part to get us to, to go towards uh, the church. So so join the church. And, and if, if you haven't been baptized, then we're going to ask you to be baptized. And what I mean when I say baptized, I, I mean baptized by immersion, okay? And if you're like, well, what about babies, baptisms? And you just should come to meet Mercy House and we'll spend 30 minutes talking about it, okay? Because I don't have time to talk about it this morning. But you should join the church, um, if you've already joined the church, you're, you're a baptized believer, you're a member of the church, uh, my hope is that this sermon would elevate these signs to a, a point where you value them in an even greater way. That's my hope, is that if you're already baptized, you're already in the church, you're already, you're already a member of the church that we'd elevate the the seriousness of these, the value of these. Uh, So baptism, here's here's some ways you can take baptism more seriously, is make sure you're there when people are getting baptized. If you're a member of this church and we're baptizing people either here on Sunday or we're out at Puffer's Pond, uh, make the effort to come out. Man, this is a special moment for a church. Don't miss that. It's like new babies are coming into the family. I mean, just think about when a new baby comes into your biological family. Are you like, eh, who cares, who cares, another baby, no, you're like throwing showers and pictures on Facebook and gender reveals, all this stuff, and it's such a big deal, and it should be, right, but this is a spiritual baby. This, This baby has now been born into the kingdom of God, into the church. And and that has changed their lives for eternity, and we as a church are celebrating that. It's just one of my favorite parts of church life, is being able to hear the testimonies of people who've come to know Christ, and to baptize them and see that sign and see them seal that relationship um, with Jesus. When they are being baptized, make a point to encourage them to introduce yourself. Say, "Hey, I'm." So-and-so, I am a member here, I'm really glad that you're here, uh, and, and make a point to reach out to them. And, and again, when, when a baby's born into uh, a family, they are given special attention. You don't, just don't put them in the corner. You're like, oh, okay, baby, fine, let's, let's do Christmas. You know, I, The baby gets special attention, partly because the baby needs special attention, right? It needs to be fed, it needs to be diapered, it needs to be cared for. Spiritual babies, same thing, they need to be loved, they need to be taken care of, they're in a vulnerable state, they're in a fragile state. And so the church family should rally around those spiritual babies that have come into the the family. So value baptism, both both your own baptism, and if you haven't been baptized, you should value, value that by getting baptized. It's a command of Jesus, you say, oh, Jesus is my Lord, but I ain't getting baptized, really? Something's not right. Repent. Get baptized. Like, come on. Lord Jesus said, get baptized. And it's, it's a command of His. But if you've already been, then value the baptisms of others. Celebrate that. Give special attention and encouragement to those new babes in Christ. Uh, communion. Take that seriously as well. You know, he, Paul says, let the person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So I've said this before at times, but when you, you, know, you see me instituting this, it should be like a little bell that goes off in your mind that says, I need to examine myself. I, I need to confess sin that, that I know about. Uh, if I'm not right with someone in the room, I, I, I need to go make that right. Like It's a time of, of confession, of repentance, and the reason you can confess and repent is because you just heard the gospel. You've heard the good news of grace. It's, it's not because you're like, well, God's going to get me if I don't do it. it. It's because you've heard the gospel. And because of that, that, that gospel, now you can repent. You can uh, confess of, uh, your sin. And it, it, when we're doing this, uh, it, it's pointing to not just what Christ has done, what He's doing in our lives right now, but it's also pointing to eternal realities. And this is one of the things that's exciting about this, is that it's looking forward to eternity with Christ. I mean, think about, again, what, what Paul says, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 26, he says, For as often as you eat, and drink the, uh, eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And so there's this sense of, of church, I want you to do this over and over and over again until I get back. So not only is it looking back at the cross and what Christ has done, it's looking forward to His eventual return, Uh, but not only that of eating this meal with Christ in eternity. Luke 22, uh, verse 16, Jesus says this to the disciples, I tell you, I will not eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He's he's letting them know that this meal is going to run continuously in the church throughout all eternity, and we'll be celebrating that meal with Christ in the age to come. That's what's going on at this little table. That's what's going on when we've offered you the gospel in the preaching, and you say, I want to receive that by faith, whether it's the first time ever you've received it by faith or whether you're receiving it by faith in an ongoing way, and then when you get out of that chair and you come down front and, and you receive this bread and receive this cup, You're acting out what just happened in the sermon, where you heard the gospel and you received it by faith, and you're looking back and you're looking forward. and In that moment, somehow, Jesus is giving us a sign of the gospel, He's helping us to seal our relationship with Him in that gospel, and He is delivering some kind of of powerful presence in this moment that I don't understand, and I, I think it's kind of crazy to try to go any further than that, uh, but something's happening, and, and he's, he's doing something unique in His church. So, if you've never received that gospel, this good news that Christ has died in your place, that this blood has been poured out, that, that, that through that blood being poured out, He is taking care of your sin and restored fellowship with God. If you've never received that by faith, I want to encourage you to do that this morning. And if if you've not done that, to turn to him in faith, just praying to him and saying, I do believe that, Lord, forgive me, bring me into relationship with you, sustain me by your grace now and forevermore. He he is eager to meet you in that prayer. And then if you've made that prayer this morning or you've moved toward God in faith at at another time in your life and and you are a Christ follower, then let's come down here and signify and and seal uh, that reality in our lives. If you've not yet done it, then remain in your seat and think about what you're hearing, ask questions about it later, Uh, but don't come up here and take it. It's serious. This is not just juice and crackers here. This this is a serious thing that's happening, and if you haven't genuinely trusted in Christ, uh, you don't want to be up here doing this, okay? So I always use these words of institution, most of which are in 1 Corinthians 11 we remember on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. He blessed it. He broke it. He gave it to them saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. After he blessed the cup, he gave it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What, what, a, what a blessing that we get to be in the new covenant. Covenant. All those other Old Testament believers were looking forward to this day, with kind of through the, the murkiness of, of, of what God had revealed to them so far. And we get to be the people of God in the new covenant. And we're in this covenant. Why? He says that this, the blood of, his, of the new covenant is for the forgiveness of sin. That his death on the cross, his pouring out of his blood, covered our sins. So, hear that. Hear that declaration through the preaching, through this ordinance, that your sins are forgiven. If you've genuinely trusted in Christ and received what he's done for you by faith, your sins are forgiven. And because of that, you're in fellowship with God. And you're going to signify that in a minute by having a meal with God and his other, his other brothers in, or, or children in this room, your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the reality that we get to live in in this new covenant time. So let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for...